Welcome to the Building Science Podcast. Welcome to the Building Science Podcast. Bringing the human factor to construction, design, and architecture. Brought to you by Positive Energy in Austin, Texas. Okay, hello and welcome to the Building Science Podcast. I'm Christoph Irwin. Welcome back. Thank you for listening. I'm here today with a good friend and a special guest, Jason Ballard. He is the... Oh, let him introduce yourself. I don't know your title. What's your role with Treehouse? Your some um, role. I'm currently the CEO and I'm, I'm one of the co-founders. Ah, CEO and co-founder of Treehouse, which is a, a very progressive building supply store here in Austin and uh, elsewhere soon. Yes, sir. Yes. So let's talk about you first, Jason. You were born in East Texas. You have a wife and kids. You are into, uh, let's see, you came out of the Boulder area as a green building guy. And uh, you want to talk about any of that? Any of that come up? Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm from, I have a, a very strange and kind of wandering story of how I ended up where I am. Please, but the, let's hear it. I mean, the short of it is, like, I grew up in a small town in East Texas that was both um, exquisitely beautiful and biologically diverse. Uh, and so I saw that and grew up around that. I mean, alligator gar... Uh, four species of carnivorous plants, um, roseate spoonbills, which people mistake for pink flamingos. I mean, just this wonderful sort of almost kind of Edenic place. Simultaneously, what I was surrounded by was petrochemical refineries. <laughs> and in, in large measure, I mean, oh, those man. petrochemical refineries supported my family, right? My grandfather worked there. My uncles worked there. Mm-hmm. And so I grew up in this like very strange tension, which, you know, reflecting back now, few decades later, I see that that helped form me a lot. And so I left for college uh, thinking I wanted to be a conservation biologist, studied fisheries and wildlife. Um, To be brief, ended up in Boulder, Colorado, you know, because it was a beautiful place. I wanted to be near wild places, um, but have a cool community. And as I started digging in on the literature about what are the sources of the ecological and human health challenges we're facing, everything kept pointing back to buildings everything kept pointing back to buildings, whether it was energy use, water use, waste production, mm-hmm. uh, where all the renewable and non-renewable uh, resources are headed. Like when you cut down a tree, you clear cut a forest, where's all those, where are all those trees headed? Um, and everything kept pointing back to buildings. So I had this real like almost conversion moment that my goodness, if I want my life, um, if what I've decided is I want my life to, to matter for ecological and human health, I need to like have a big pivot and, and not be a field biologist, not that there's anything wrong with that. I think it's a, an awesome job, but I need to be working on buildings. And so I threw myself, any green builder or green architect or green developer in the front range area of Colorado that would hire me, I would work. I would install cabinets. I would hang drywall. I would insulate attic. I would do anything. And so, um, and that that's how I got started in the space. And then I worked for a number of people, like I said, developers, handymen, cabinet shop. Mm-hmm. And everybody had the same challenge, whether they were a professional or a homeowner, which was finding well-curated product, finding good sources of information, getting it at a price that was um, attainable, even if they valued it, having a price that was attainable. They didn't necessarily want like bargain basement prices, but they needed it to be attainable, um, and they needed it to be accessible. And so it really wasn't that brilliant of an insight. It was just like there needs to be a place that is highly educated and education education forward that curates materials and services related to what this movement is trying to accomplish. And so that was the idea. My then girlfriend and now wife came up with the name Treehouse. 
And um, I was not a business guy, so roped in a few co-founders, and the rest is history. We opened the store in 2011. Yeah, and I've been there. I love it. It's got a lot of good products. Uh, we'll be talking about those coming yeah. up. A tiny bit more about you. So you have here on this little bio ultra marathoning and fly fishing. You, you still finding time for this? Yeah, um, fly fishing's a little challenging in central Texas. I'm, I'm sort of partial to the salmonoid mm. family of fish, which don't natively occur here, although random <laughs> fact, the southernmost trout fishery in America is in the tailwaters below Canyon Lake Dam. They're obviously not native, um, but I, I do fish that. anytime I get a chance. Uh, the great thing about trout is they're snobs. They only live in beautiful places, and so when you're chasing trout, you often end up in beautiful places yourself. Uh, I do run quite a bit. Um, my wife likes to joke, you know, between starting a business and ultra marathons and things like that. I, for whatever reason, feel drawn to very difficult things. Yeah. Um, and find a lot of enjoyment and fulfillment in difficult things. So. Yeah. Well, yeah. Let, let's go with that. That's actually a good theme, difficult things, because uh, one strong connection we have between our two companies is we're engaged in dif a difficult task, mm -hmm. which is industry transformation. Mm -hmm. And fundamentally, it comes down to uh, people not being aware of different choices, in, in my opinion. Um, and we're both involved in seeking to change that, right? Positive energy on the design, service, science, education, right. advocacy end, and then you on the making it real end. Once mm -hmm. people get the understanding, they'll come to find you. Um, and I guess I'd like to understand, tell you a bit more about Treehouse as a store here. You're offering products to people, mm -hmm. but you need people to come in the door and right. engage. Uh, how do you get that to happen? I mean, so... How do you see that happening? Yeah, there's two sides. There's, like, what we want to do and then what we have to do. What we want mm -hmm. to do is advance the practice of sustainable, healthy, um, human-centered building. Um, what we have to do is be a sound business. Like, you don't you don't arrive at that without sort of sound business principles. And right. so there's financial implications, there's marketing implications, there are operational implications. Um and those are things I've had to learn on the fly, but you don't escape needing to be a good business. Absolutely. Um, and so the things any startup business or operating business faces with um, how to identify customers, how to speak uh, articulately and clearly to their needs and desires um, have been, uh, I think, something we've paid a lot more attention to maybe than uh, other attempts at the same thing. There have been other companies who have tried to start sort of sustainable building supply companies, right? Um, and we were sort of lived under this illusion for a while, too, that, man, if you just if you build it, they will come. Yeah. Right? This is mm -hmm. such a good idea and so profoundly the right thing to Been do. Been there. And there. They will just beat it, <laughs> and absolutely not. I mean, no. the world is full of noise, full of competing demands, and even the most well-intentioned people uh, have limited financial resources, have limited time, bandwidth, uh, you have to catch them. Everybody's not doing something to their home every day, so there's a timing issue. Um, anyway, and so that that has been our great challenge so far, and I think we're we're really beginning to find our stride, and it's, mm -hmm. it's been exciting. That's great. It's also incredibly timely. I don't know if you know that there was an analysis done by Ed Mazria as part of the Architecture 2030 Challenge, where they say that by the year 2035, now, and I haven't vetted these statistics, but it's, it's still quite striking, by the year 2035, three-quarters of the buildings in the United States will either be new, newly constructed, or newly renovated. So it's a, it's a perfect time in some sense, right? right. We're here where many of our building, our aging building stock, is in need of retrofit mm -hmm. right now. Yep. And so 
and, and most of those, people think of commercial spaces when, when, when you say things, aging, building stock. Right. But really, it's houses. No, no, you're absolutely right. <laughs> I mean, there's a lot of reasons for this, but the Rocky Mountain Institute, I'm sure you're familiar, they have a big initiative on sustainable buildings, and I'm actually fortunate to be part of their think tank on residential energy. Um, awesome. Buildings are the number one user of energy in this country, according to Rocky Mountain Institute, and residential energy use exceeds commercial energy use. The reason people haven't focused on residential energy is it's actually like a harder row to hoe. Oh, yeah. You, you know, in terms of financially harder row to hoe, because to get to, you know, say we wanted to retrofit the Frost Bank building in downtown Austin, there's like a very small group of people you have to convince that that's a good idea. Um, to have the same effect... With homes, there's thousands of like discrete homeowners you have to convince, mm-hmm. and um, then give that them that an the enabling thing path, and then give them a path to do it. And so mm-hmm. it's, um, it's it's it's, a, it's much more challenging from a business perspective mm-hmm. to go after the residential mm-hmm. market. And I see it a little bit like um, like the cars in Cuba, right? There's all these 1950s cars. And, <laughs> and if you've never driven anything, anything other than a 1950s car, it might just seem fine. But if they were to come here and get into a Tesla, they'd be like, oh, forget it. What I was, And in houses, it's the same way. I've always lived in this house. It's always been drafty. It's always uh, delivered a lot of particles to my lungs. It's just the way it is. You know, yeah. People don't realize, no, it doesn't have to. And, and, and in the discipline of building science um, and healthy building, so like almost building biology or human factors in building, these are very young disciplines. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um and the current crop of professionals leading the space, um, th- this is n- sort of new for everyone. Yes. Um, which is actually why Treehouse has focused our efforts so far primarily on the retrofit, because that's the most urgent need. It's like the, the housing stock that exists needs to be retrofit. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, so. Yeah, I'm thinking of the solar. I guess this is going to be a bit of a meandering uh, podcast, because thinking about retrofits gets me thinking about... What, what transformed the PV market most potently in the recent years were business practices and financial models, not right. new technologies. That's exactly right. And I think a lot of us are waiting for the same thing to hit the retrofit market, to someone to come up with an idea. And I actually have my lead field inspector, Sean, here is a, used to be a mover in his spare time, mm-hmm. big, strong guy. And I had two clients. I was a home performance contractor for several years. And I had a couple of clients where I, I came teeteringly close. Ultimately, neither one of them pulled the trigger to say, look, here's what we're going to do. We're going to get you one of those portable on-demand storage systems in your front yard. We're going to empty your house. We're going to pull down a lot of the sheetrock, and we're going to do this right. And when it's done, it's going to be right. Otherwise, it's, excuse me, it's makeup on a pig kind of situation. I'm going to do my best right. with the limited budget that you have. We call it green bling at Treehouse. Green bling. There yeah. you go. So it's like it's going to be not worse. It's going to be even better. But it's going to be highly incremental. And uh, for me as the professional that, that sees that I'm going to still leave this person with the, uh, with the emergency brake half on or their tires still deflated somewhat, it's like, ah, oh, if, if, if their house was a car. It never quite sat well with me. Mm-hmm. Um, so you do, you currently offer services besides the products. You offer services, is that Yeah, and that was sort of a discovery as well. Um, that at first we, we were just thought of ourselves as a product company. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, but as you well know, and you, if I had met you sooner, Christoph, you could have informed me, but um, a product can only go so far. It, it has to do with, number one, the design of the building, and number two, how that product is installed or placed in the home. Mm-hmm. Um, and the, the sad truth is we couldn't 
I don't want to be insulting, but we sort of couldn't trust the average um, professional or homeowner to do it appropriately. No, I agree. Um, and so we had to work just as hard curating a bullpen of installation partners and service partners. Um, and we're actually start to, about to start running experiments of you know fully employing service partners um, to guarantee that it, it, it is done appropriately. Um, what that then allowed us to do was sort of productize things. And so we didn't just sell solar panels. We sold like a solar package that we could guarantee would be done right. We're now doing the same thing with like the building envelope. Um, we're not going to come in and sort of a la carte, do you want the can light seal? Do you want the air return seal? Do you want the, you, you must sort of must do it all or there's no point in doing any of it, at least financially no point. Um, but that's how a lot of the building performance companies in town were selling these things. It was sort of this a la carte menu. And so we're trying to put together a program where you know that the products will be right in, t- in terms of they will be as sustainable and healthy as possible, that the service will be performed um, in such a way that it will be of a high quality and have the desired effect. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we're, we're sort of becoming this more, instead of a product place, more of a project place. Beautiful. Where you buy a, a product-service combo um, Again, I tell people all the time. I mean, we don't we don't have a business model per se. We have a mission, and we will keep pivoting and doing whatever we have to to accomplish that mission. And, and hopefully, there kind of a rising tide will lift all boats that we can be um, a good example. I mean, taking good building science insights and delivering them to the homeowner. Mm-hmm. Um, so we're sort of the last stop um, on the train. Yeah, I like it. I like I like the term pivot because it sounds. Uh deliberate and uh, I have to think about my path to getting here where I am as a consultant and engineer and building science I was an engineer and a physicist and then I was a builder and felt like couldn't I could only affect you know five to ten homes a year as a builder I Mm -hmm. wanted to affect more so I started to be a building science consultant or a retrofit but I didn't see it as pivots I saw Mm -hmm. it as um, this isn't working this isn't working this isn't this isn't potent enough but I like I like the Terminology there. Well, the, but the principle is the same. I mean, you are determined mm-hmm. to find a way, and you're Something's like, you're work. going to keep going. I mean, Thomas Edison, his famous line was like, "I never failed. I just found a thousand things that didn't work." Right? Yeah. It's, it's all sort of falling forward. That's a great way to you say. Just don't it. give up. And right. the, the, the issue is important enough, and urgent enough, and the magnitude is large enough that we have to find we have to find a way to shelter ourselves in a way that doesn't ruin the world around us and ourselves. Absolutely. It's, it's existentially urgent. I, I don't want to be alarmist, but it is... No, I, I, I agree, and I think that people... Well, I agree, and two things. One is I think that it's unfortunate that most people don't know, given that they live in homes or right. work in buildings. <laughs> right. You know, you've heard the statistic, we spend 87% of our time inside buildings, 6% inside cars, so what is that? Leaves uh, 7% outside. But the magnitude of the problem... Reminds me, so I just did a workshop yesterday with the AIA in San Antonio on integrated design and integrated project delivery. I'm going to take a couple sentences about that, and this is going to go somewhere. So integrated design means all the stakeholders put all their interests in, got all of them known, and the whole team designed around all of the all of the factors in delivering a building. And uh, currently, without that happening. There's a de facto dominant industry 
uh, factor that makes decisions, and what do you what would you suggest it is? Oh yeah, first cost. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, like people just want the price tag on the shelf. Yeah. Uh, know you know that, that metaphorically. I mean, we, I think about price tags on shelves because I have products and shelves. Uh-huh. Um, but that's it. What is it going to cost me right now? Mm-hmm. And we all we often try to tell people, hey, when you buy a light bulb, for, just to make a really stupid example, um, but an understandable one. There are actually three price tags on that light bulb, and you only get to see one of them. The first price tag is that first cost price on the shelf. The next price tag on the light bulb is the price to operate it. And then the third price tag is frequency of replacement mm-hmm, mm-hmm. or any sort of after work or maintenance or care. Um, there might even be a fourth, the environmental impacts of Golly, yeah. I mean, you could probably it. really go down the rabbit hole, and mm-hmm. there's a, probably more than three. Yeah. Um, and if you add up all three price tags... Um, LED is, for instance, you know, my argument would be LED is the cheapest light bulb. Like, we both have this goal of having the most affordable way to comfortably light our homes. Um, And if you sort of look at all the price tags, actually the the, the sort of healthy, sustainable route is often the most affordable when all price tags are considered. Um, Who's the architect that just won the Pritzker Prize? Alejandro Aravena. He he has this wonderful saying that... um, He's in, like, Columbia. Yeah, sustainability is nothing except the rigorous application of common sense. Awesome. Which is, like, I don't think I nailed it on the head, but that's the idea. The rigorous application of common sense is sustainability. And I love that idea that we're not at odds with what people want, right? Exactly, exactly. Yeah, so one of the themes from that workshop yesterday and from our businesses, actually, is if you design for people... A good building follows, right? And if you design, if you insist on a good building, a good process follows. So, that, so we're in that kind of those two dyads there. It would be nice if all we needed was integrated designs, mm-hmm. but what we really need is an integrated delivery process. And the design, even that, is is a challenge to bring all the stakeholders to the table and to to be able to articulate. Look, health and comfort are as important as budget. And if your budget is actually constrained to that, don't sacrifice health and comfort. Make a smaller, better building. I mean, we find ourselves saying that a lot. And maybe one out of five times, say better than one out of ten, one out of five times, that's what happens with our clients. And we're lucky because you mentioned it, that you, know, you go right to the homeowner clients and they, they have, there's more of them. So it's a problem. There's fewer clients in the, fewer, um, more square foot per client in a big building situation. But when you go to a home, when you go to a single-family home, if you can convince the husband and wife that it's the right thing to do and if they can achieve it with their budget, which that gets into a certain demographic or probably the early adopters of the full, you know, the full Monty here, then it happens. Okay, but where am I going with this? So where I'm going with this is that what we are is you and I are enmeshed in an industry of interconnected stakeholder interests. And it isn't just owners, uh, designers, engineers, builders, you know, all the sub-consultants that can go into a building. It is the lenders. It's the insurers. I mean, uh, you could go on and on. It's, mm-hmm. it's an mm-hmm. enmeshed group. Mor- mortgage appraisers. I mean, just exactly. on and Appraisers, on. that's yeah. a very important one. Yeah, that's that gets personal. I was building very good buildings during and selling them in 2008 when their big slump was here and uh you know they had like a $30,000 air conditioning system but they were next door to one that had an $8,000 air conditioning system and they didn't get any benefit for that right because the appraisers didn't know how I don't know if you guys can hear it we have some thunder rumbling through so 
So I've been reading a lot about industry transformation and am somewhat dismayed to report that transformation rarely comes from within the stakeholder community. Mm -hmm. The stakeholder community can do what we're doing, which is we, you and I as people, and probably representative of many people, probably you guys listening to this podcast are self-selecting yourselves in this group, uh, of people that see the need for shift Mm -hmm. and yearn for it, work toward it, right? But the truth of the matter is it's a we're still insiders and we have limited effectiveness. Gradually over time I think it'll be very effective. But what causes radical and rapid transformation of markets and industries are external shifts. Mm-hmm. Things like macroeconomic trends and technology transformation. And in fact, even um, like global values shifts. Right? So what happened in Paris this year was very different than in previous years. And uh, so you are actually engaged with the, the change agents, the yes. customers that come into your door. Mm-hmm. And I don't know, I guess some of them don't come in your door as, cha- as ready to change. Or tell me about your yeah, customers. I mean, what do you think? I mean, our, our, our customers being homeowners are as varied as you can imagine, mm-hmm. right? There sort of isn't a stereotypical treehouse customer other than they're usually homeowners. But we sort of have the entire political spectrum, the entire financial spectrum among homeowners um, interesting. And, and, and it really is interesting to, to, for us to learn to articulate what we're up to in such a way that has um, universal appeal and understanding. Um, and then that has been, frankly, like, like one of the big um, challenges of Trios that we're, we're very excited to be making progress on. But back to your point about sort of, um, I'm a biologist, and so oh. what, what you were just describing makes me, I mean, it's an ecosystem. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is absolutely an interconnected ecosystem. Interconnectedness was one of the first insights of ecology, which is also a young science that we sort of take for granted now, but it's a profound insight. And it's not just traditional ecosystems that work by principles of interconnection and it's, it's entire industries, right? Um, and the way things go now, I mean, one of the most financially uh, lucrative ways to pursue building, for instance, at least a new construction would be an architect draws canned housing designs, right, with no climate zone or solar orientation particularly in mind. A, uh, a spec builder who doesn't know that architect, nor does he know the people who may live in that house one day, um, purchases these designs and then builds them on lots without reference to climate zone or uh, solar orientation. And then people will come and buy these homes. Who, and, and so none of these people have ever met each other or have the slightest sort of idea about how, what assumptions are, are in place. Um, and so it's not sort of surprising that the end result is um, buildings that don't work for their climate, that don't work for um, the people who live in them often right. enough. Mm-hmm. And so. they don't know better, right? And they don't know that they're breathing hundreds of pounds of air a day. And they would mm-hmm. be careful maybe mm-hmm. on what they ate in terms of food. Right. But they don't. They're not careful about what they breathe. They're satisfied with, with low levels of comfort. And the builder in that scenario, in often, often is the case that, when he builds the house, like builds should be in quotes. And really, what he does is he initiates a series of baton passes from the person who cleared the site to f- formed the slab to f- did the framing. You know, da 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 down the line. And in fact, none of those people are talking to each other. So somebody. Mm-hmm puts up the water control layer on the outside of the house, and then later, of course, the refrigerant lines or the electric lines need to go through it, and there's there's a hole. <laughs> there's right. an air leak, a water leak. And right. And, and there's no sort of guarantee that the people along the value chain, so the idea is that each person along the chain is adding some value to the process, and there's no 
there's no there's nothing that says any of these people need to actually know what they're doing in terms of best practices. Mm-hmm. I mean, it would be sort of like I don't want to be too extreme. I mean, it would be like a doctor performing surgery without the first having it having the first idea about basic anatomy, mm-hmm. right? Um, exactly. There are people who build thermal envelopes. Whether they know that's what they're building, they're building thermal envelopes without the first idea about how heat and moisture move around in the world. Yeah. Like, it's sort of the, the first principles that govern what a good thermal envelope ought to be like. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, again, not surprising that, those, that perhaps things go off the rails from time to time. Um, and the most, probably the most insulting thing, if I were a builder, here's what I would find insulting. Um, if you go into any conventional home improvement store and you ask for builder-grade windows or builder-grade paint, you are asking for the worst thing in the store. Right, and if I was a professional builder who took what I did seriously, that would be so insulting. It would be sort of like if medical grade equipment meant like the worst grade <laughs> equipment, or if aircraft grade aluminum meant like the worst aluminum. Right, and you're in the aviation industry, you're proud to say that aviation grade aluminum is like the one of the highest grades of aluminum. Mm-hmm. Right, and medical grade equipment is the highest grade, except for builders. Mm-hmm. Builder grade means the worst. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, well, and that's that's terrible. Well, right. I mean, that's just a, that's a but it's a. Well, in your, in your ecosystem metaphor, which is apt, uh, and I want to get back to that in a different angle, but in your ecosystem metaphor, one of the reasons builder-grade equipment uh, components are so cheap and is because builders want them to be cheap, and one of the reasons builders want them to be cheap is because homeowners expect homes to cost X, where X is actually lower than the home should cost. Mm-hmm. So they get something like a Hollywood movie set of a home. It sure looks like a home. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, I've talked about that on other podcasts, but... I th- but but I, the, the, what I am so excited about, Chris, I'm just like this. It's that back to that first cost issue is what you're saying. People are just like, what's the cost? What's the cost right now? Like th- we can absolutely overcome that. I mean, and, and we've seen it in other industries. I see yours on the table, and I have one in my pocket. We have an iPhone, um, and I think like if you paid, if you like got to see what you were paying all at once, had these tricky ways of helping you not know what you're paying for an iPhone. But if you got to see, you're paying like eight hundred dollars or something like that. I think. And so it's this $800 piece of technology that we're wa- almost all of us are walking around with it in our pocket, um, and it's going to go. It's going to be obsolete in a couple of years. And so interesting. I just pay my monthly and get new phones every few years. Right. And but with appliances, often you can get a. For instance, I don't know why appliances popped in mind. Probably because it's a con- close to a consumer electronic, but a home appliance. You can get one that will have a double the warranty, be far more water and energy efficient, and just a more resilient appliance for like $200 more usually. Right, and people are like, oh, like I can't afford that, or like people will never go for that. Um, but if you can explain the value, like uh, obviously Apple has done a great job creating value. Like, I, I just simply don't believe it that people can't afford good appliances because they're walking around with eight hundred dollar phones in their pockets. Like, we can find a way to communicate value and help people make good choices. Um, like, we we simply can. Like, I'm, I'm sort of grateful. That one of our biggest challenges is the first co- first cost challenge because mm-hmm, mm-hmm. um, that's solvable. It is solvable, absolutely, mm-hmm. um, and that's what I mean. We and we are every day solving it at Treehouse. I think absolutely. I I, I would like to see. I, let, let's have a discussion about this. So, one of the things that I find unfortunate, and uh, when it comes to marketing or or the consumer conversation, no, not consumer, the public discussion of. Why should we care more about our built space? I think Al Gore influenced it. I think he did some great things with his mm-hmm. talks, but I think he politicized it and made it about energy. And I would prefer that what we're doing, to, saying to our homeowners and our, our building owners generally is, 
You want to be healthy. Yep. And you want to be comfortable. Yep. You want to have and and not. And you already pay. People already pay lots of money to have health and comfort, right? People pay very meaningful amounts of money for gym memberships, for better food, for massages, for Mm -hmm. vacations, for all these things that create comfort, experience, you know, perceived happiness. And so it's not like we have to convince people to spend money on those things. We just need to, like, make sure we're addressing those things as Mm -hmm. part of our practice. Where do you spend the money? I I mean, we refer to it at Trails as the Tesla Insight. Um, For so long with electric cars, you know, let's be frank, they looked kind of weird. They, we weren't sure how far they would go or if we were sure it was, you know, 80 miles or something. So you had range anxiety. Um, We weren't sure about safety, like how, you know, would the batteries catch on fire in a wreck and all these things. But you know what? Save the whales and everybody just needs to drive an electric car because it's the right thing to do, by goodness. Um, And what Tesla came along and did was say, no, like for us to make electric cars normal, they have to succeed as cars. They have to be fast, sexy, safe. We need to try to make the best car ever made. Um, and that's kind of how we need to approach oh, yeah. buildings, right? Um, you go back to first principles of buildings. Whenever the first Neanderthal or caveman or whoever, I guess assuming in my metaphor here that he's not in a cave yet, when the first shelters were entered or constructed, the questions are, like, what are we solving for in that scenario, right? Um, you're solving for comfort and safety, right? The first person who ever built a home wasn't saying, What's the most sustainable thing I can do? Because the most sustainable thing you could do would be keep sleeping on the ground, right? Uses very little resources, very little energy, very little water. The, the problem that houses solve for is safety and comfort. And then over time, we've had these second-order issues like beauty, aesthetics, um, and experience. And so we have to solve the energy and water and health issues as we solve the comfort, durability um, safety issues. like They have to be solved together. And so the, what we need to do is find a way in which the most sustainable and healthy homes are the safest and most comfortable and best experienced homes. And what it turns out is when you, you advance the mission, you deliver the, 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 the value the homeowner is looking for in their home at the same time. And I think that's absolutely doable. Well said, um, yeah. So I'm just saying that I think that, and you've said it very well, the point of connection on health and comfort is is probably going to be stickier than yeah. just save the Which plant. is why you guys are spot on in this podcast and what you guys do at Positive Energy with human-centered Center design. Building design yeah. I mean, that is spot on. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm, I'm sort of... That's what we preach at Treehouse now, and it comes from you. So, um, thank you. That's absolutely right. Thank you. Yeah, and w- one of the other ideas you bringing up appliances was good. Um, there's two quick ideas on that. One is that so Austin has a very progressive building code. We have a net zero building code, aiming to be net zero uh, by 2015. It looks like it's going to be a little bit later, maybe 2018. But <clears throat> on the enclosure and mechanicals, uh, air, air conditioning, heating side. That's it. We've drilled it down about as far as it can go to get meaningful energy reductions. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's net zero capable, I should say, uh, meaning you put some PV on the roof and you can go to net zero. Well, now the next steps are, are water heating, which, which can be done well. And it's close to saying that's as simple as recommending heat pump water heaters yeah. broadly. And, but then it gets into the consumer appliances, which from a code perspective is a non-starter because right. they don't really get to say your dishwasher should be X, your washer and dryer should be this configuration. Mm-hmm. But they can leverage, I mean, the, the, this code writing authority in Austin can say a washer-dryer combination that has 
an energy factor of such and such. These are available. These are currently available. And this gets into something I think that is really central to what both of our businesses recognize. And uh, I don't know who coined this quote, but it, and I'm probably butchering it again, is the future is here already. Mm-hmm. The technology it just hasn't diffused through society fully or properly yeah. yet. So the future is here already means from a building perspective, all buildings could be net positive mm-hmm. right now. Mm-hmm. We just have to agree that it's what we want to do as a goal, as a society. Yeah. Yeah. Why aren't we agreeing to that? I mean, what, um, that's a big question. Again, um, I, I call it, uh, one thing I call it sometimes is non-malicious ignorance. I think Ooh. there is malicious ignorance in the world. Like people purposefully for very bad reasons putting out misinformation or repressing good information. I don't think that's actually a large percent of human beings or a large percent of what's going on. Um, there's just this sort of non-malicious ignorance. It's, it, we assume that the professionals are know all this stuff and are doing it appropriately and I don't need to worry about it or some something like that. And so um, we at Trios all the time, we try to tell people things they can't unhear. That's the language we use. Tell them something they can't unhear. So if they're in there buying paint, even if they decide not to buy Roma Bio paint or no VOC paint that day, we're going to explain to them things that are in paint, how paint works, how long it can last, sort of like appealing to health, comfort, safety. And even if they walk away, they have now heard something they cannot unhear. And if we put off, put out enough of those things that you can't unhear into the world, um, we're sort of winning hearts and minds one homeowner at a time. Um, the great thing about homes, though, and one of the exciting opportunities is they are so personal and it's the, the part of your life where you perhaps have the most autonomy in your decision making. And so we actually don't have to wait for governments. Yes. And we don't have to wait for nonprofits. And we don't have to, like, we can do things. Um, and that's what's fun about what I get to do at Trials every day. And probably what you get to do too is, like, hey guys, we can do this right now. We yep. don't have to wait for a single mm-hmm. thing. The future can be here today. Of course, government incentives help. They can they, they can catalyze certain activities, et cetera, et cetera. But um, there aren't these like there actually aren't any even any big blockers other than just getting out there and doing the work of education, promoting good building science and design principles. Um, and then for us now, what we just have to bolt on to the last step is finding good business practices like um, economies of scale, just buying in large enough scale to reduce price. Basic business principle it doesn't apply to home improvement only; it applies to almost every industry. If you, the more you buy and produce of it, the lower the you know you can. F- drive efficiencies and lower cost, uh, good financing opportunities, right? Who knew that bankers would hold one of the keys to a sustainable future? But in fact, they, they do, do great yeah. financing, just good business now, because um, that's, that's really the only leg of the journey that's missing. And, and we are all the time, um, a, a few dozen people a year come to Treehouse with very right down the, they're not poor people, but right down, and, but nor are they very wealthy. They're sort of right down the fairway in terms of income in Austin, and we convert a few dozen homes a year to effectively net zero energy homes and right in people's price range. Um, it's funny though, what they often, they, they often will post their electric bills on Facebook or something, but uh, often enough what they come in talking about is my house is so comfortable now. It's so pleasant to be there. People remark that my house is so comfortable. And so um, it, it can be, it can be done today. I think that's what you brought up. Crystal. Oh, yeah. like, the future is here now and it absolutely can be done. And it's not just positive energy that can do it, and it's not just trials that can do it. Like, this this is, the time is now. Yep. Absolutely. Yeah. So agree completely with that 
uh, Jason, that really that everyone involved in delivering conditioned space needs to be aware of the realities of what happens when you deliver conditioned space. It, does the air control layer matter? Does the way you condition the air matter? Does the way you filter the air matter? And the answer is yes. And that I, I encourage the rest of the professionals out there listening and anyone you know, keep spreading the word that the future is here now. We just need to pay attention and do it right. And I think that there's a timidity in the, in the marketplace from the products manufacturers, designers, builders. There's a timidity to really stand up and say, you can't build that big a home for that much money or that big a building for that much money and have it be a good quality building. Or, so in, in not saying that, what they say is implicitly, like under, the undertext or the hidden text is, oh, sure, I'm going to build you that home for that budget and you know what? It's not going to be as good as it could have been. It's going to leave a lot of low-hanging fruit unpicked. Um, so I think we should start to wrap up. But before we wrap up, I want to mention this one thing. You mentioned things that people can't unhear. And one of them that really connected to me was when I did the math for how much, how many pounds of air, hundreds, like three to 400 pounds of air, depending on how big you are. And that's resting. You know, if you exercise, it goes up. So people are very aware of what they put in their bodies these days, whether it's food, you know, clean water, uh, medications, supplements, all these things. Air, I think, is getting past their radar. They don't realize that not only do they breathe the air, but that the job of breathing air is to transfer that air, some of that air, the oxygen, into their blood. And that other, fact, other um, ingredients in the airstream can go into the blood. So I think that's something that people can't unhear. Just say, are you aware that you're going to pull a few hundred pounds of air into your body today? Yeah, helping people ask the right questions. Yeah. So you and I, on a daily basis, are engaged in incremental shifts and myriad small pivots looking for a wiggle, looking for a gap that moves the industry forward. And I know for me there are times, the uh, dark moments of the soul or something like that business-wise, where... I get down and it feels um, daunting. And then if I think about the nine-year journey of positive energy, you know, as a montage, oh my gosh, you know, we're, we're 10x our first year income, you know, mm -hmm. revenue. Mm -hmm. and so it's working, it's happening, people are getting it. And um, yeah, I guess that's kind of my final thought. Do you have any final messages for our listeners? No, only to double down on that, that this... It is quite. It is so exciting to be involved in this space. And somebody asked me recently, if you could live at any time in history, when would you want to be alive? And I sort of thought about it for a second. Interesting. And I actually, I think I would want to be alive right now. Yeah. Because we are making decisions and we are doing things that humanity will have to live with for the next hundred, few hundred, if not few thousand years. In turn, you know, at sort of the most macro levels. And so how profoundly exciting to get to do that and to get to touch one of the most basic of human needs, which is shelter, right? Yes. We're not touching like this nice to have, some people need it, other people don't. Like it's shelter. We get to have a profound impact on shelter and we're going to make decisions about shelter that people are going to, it's going to impact people for a very, very long time. Um, so it can be done. The things that we dream about can happen and that we have every reason to be optimistic about the future of shelter and buildings and homes. Well said. Let's leave it at that. Thank you guys for listening.
curtain. It's exactly what Nesta's doing, they, and, and they have great potency. But to your to the point that you were going to, twenty um, percent across all the homes is huge. Nest is like three to five percent, nothing to the home, right? Um, and there's there's lots of caveats on that. The thermostat location is actually one of them. And mm-hmm. where are you sensing the temperature? Yeah. yeah. So all right. So let's do the wrap up. Um, so the last thing we had just talked about was people, right? People getting to individual people. I'm trying to think about what's the best way to segue in. Is it hard for you to play us with the last thing that we oh, just no.